0: All right, everyone, let's take out our Bibles. And if you will, open with me today to Mark chapter 1. Here in just a moment, we'll begin in verse 9. As we continue our trek through the book of Mark, still in the very beginnings. Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11 today. The baptism of Jesus. Now, there is perhaps no practice that churches disagree on more than baptism. I mean, should we... Dunk them underwater? Should we pour water over their heads? Should we sprinkle them? Who can do a baptism? Does it have to be an ordained minister? Can it be anybody? Does it have to be a man? Can it even be a woman? Should we baptize adults only or should we baptize infants as well? Is baptism a symbol of church membership or is it something more than that? Should we use a baptistry? Can we use a lake? Can we use a swimming pool? Can we use our bathtub? Does it have to be special water? Does it have to be blessed by a priest? Does it have to be purified water? What if there's a dead bug in the baptism? Did that bug go to heaven? There's even a whole denomination of churches called Baptists. When I was a youth intern in my younger days at a church, we went to a smaller church in Danville, Virginia, to put on a VBS and as we were decorating, the very first day we were there, our youth minister, his name was Corey, was stretching out over the baptistry, trying to hang something that would go, you know, across the span across the whole thing. And he, he slipped and he fell into the baptistry. Big splash, full immersion. And later, the a couple of the girls in the youth group came up to me, real sheepish like, and said, "Mr. John, we have a question." And I said, "Okay, what is it?" And they said. Does that mean he just got rebaptized? And we we had to talk about that for a moment. It was good. But amidst all the disagreements in all the different churches, one thing almost every church agrees upon is that baptism is important. Baptism is important. And one of the main reasons why we think baptism is important is because Jesus himself was baptized. That's where we come today in our text in the book of Mark. And so let's read our text. It's verses 9 through 11, chapter 1. This is God's word. Mark writes, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son." With you, I am well pleased. I want to ask a few questions of our text today. And these questions will serve as kind of the structure for our sermon. The first question is this. Where did this man come from? Where did Jesus come from? Because it actually makes mention of this detail. And we we ask why. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why does Mark include this detail? Well, I think it, it has something to do, it must have something to do, with what Nathanael, one of the twelve, with what Nathaniel said when Philip came to him. If you remember this, this scene in John 1, Philip comes to Nathanael and says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one that Moses and the prophets all wrote about, and it is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael responds and says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And so, Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, it was a small, obscure town, which apparently had a bad reputation. Jesus came from a small, obscure town that apparently had a bad reputation Now, in verse 5 above, that we looked at last week, it says people from all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized. They were coming out from these places. Jerusalem, specifically, was the center of Jewish religion and religious life in that day. All the prominent rabbis, all the prominent scribes, all of the influential teaching was coming out of Jerusalem. It's a metropolitan area. Lots of people are coming from there to be baptized, but here comes this man from Nazareth to be baptized. My mentor and seminary professor, the late Dr. Jack Cottrell, was from a little old place called Stamping Ground, Kentucky. Some of y'all might know where that is. Stamping Ground, Kentucky. Now, he went on to become one of the most brilliant and prolific theologians of our day having authored over 40 books on the Bible and theology. Some of those are the most brilliant treatments of the subjects I've ever read. But in that kind of community, the academic theology community, I want you to imagine what it's like in that community, okay? You can imagine the atmosphere. Your pedigree and your background can earn you a lot of respect in a community like that. If you come from a big city, A lot of times you automatically have some credibility if you're from a very influential church, perhaps. And what gets you even more is if you're from England. I don't know why. It's just the history of of our world, and especially if you studied at a place like Cambridge or Oxford. I mean, you've already got this clout where if you, you put something out, everybody just hangs on your every word. And here comes this country bumpkin from Stamping Ground, Kentucky, and how is, how is someone from a place like that going to contribute anything of substance to this field of study? It was a lot like, and I, I'm, I'm mixing my illustrations here, but it was a lot like when Larry Bird went into the MBA and everybody's like, who is this hick from little old town in Indiana, French Lick, Indiana? Who is this guy? And you know, those people who thought that, they, well, they, they got a rude awakening. Same kind of, kind of happened in, in the theology world when Dr. Cottrell came in. But the idea is Jesus comes from This backwater, small, obscure town that everybody already looks down on. And that's where God decided the Messiah, the Lord of all the earth, was going to be raised. That's where he comes from. He's God in the flesh. He's the creator of the universe. Everything was created through him, the Bible says. He's the king and savior and Lord of everyone and everything. And yet he's from this little, obscure town. I think that should make all of us feel a little better today. It should make all of us feel a little better. Young people, you might think that because you are from Adair County, Kentucky, that you might not make much of a difference in the world during your lifetime. But God has always been pleased to do great things through people who come from humble circumstances. God has always been pleased. To do great things in his kingdom through people who come from humble places and humble circumstances. In fact, it is the humble way in which Jesus came to the world that makes his glory shine all the brighter, is it not? The humble way that he came. He was born in a stable among farm animals. There was no room for that family to stay somewhere nice. He had little fanfare when he was born. He was raised in a small town with a bad reputation, as we've seen. Raised by a poor young girl and her carpenter husband. He comes out to begin his ministry as a man completely unknown to almost everyone. And then he serves others. And he washes feet. And he loves the outcasts. And then he submits to a criminal's death being condemned and refusing, as Clay said earlier, to defend himself. The humble way that Jesus came makes his glory shine all the brighter. And so be encouraged. We might be from humble places. We might be from humble circumstances. But Jesus was too. God has always been pleased to use people like that in his kingdom for great things. Now do not for a minute think that greatness... That, that preacher's talking about, that's mean, I, I can grow up and be famous. That's not what we're talking about. God's idea of greatness is much different than our own. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be the slave of all. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. We talked about John the Baptist last week. Somebody that Jesus said was, was the greatest among those born of women. And then he adds, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's God's kingdom. That's greatness according to the Father. And so, where did he come from? But also, the question that I think is on all of our minds here, why was he baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, isn't that what we all want to know when we come to this passage? Isn't that what everybody's thinking? Because look at verse 4 above. Verse 4 says, John was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, Jesus never sinned. He doesn't need to repent of anything. He doesn't need forgiveness. Why in the world is he baptized at all? We've often thought this. I know many of us have. In Matthew's account, John the Baptist tries to stop this from happening. He recognizes this very idea. Jesus comes to John, and John tries to prevent it. And John essentially says to Jesus, This is backwards. I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? This this doesn't even seem right. Now, many have pointed out that this is one of the great pieces of evidence that the events here in the Gospels actually happened. Jesus' baptism being here in this Gospel and in the others is one of the great pieces of evidence that all these events actually occurred. Why? Because if early Christians wanted to to make up a fake story, to trick people, they wouldn't have included this. They wouldn't have included this if it was fake. Because this doesn't solve problems for us. It creates them, right? This this text right here creates problems for us. We think, why was Jesus baptized? He didn't even need to be baptized. If someone was trying to fabricate a fake story to trick people, they would never have included something like this. And yet they did. Why? Because it really happened because it actually happened. And so why was Jesus baptized at all? Well, the first hint of a reason that we get is from the mouth of Jesus himself, but we have to go over to Matthew's account of this very event to find it. Matthew chapter three, starting in verse 14. This will be up on the screens behind me. It says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. To fulfill all righteousness. That's why Jesus says they need to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. But I don't know about you, over the years I have read that and I I just think, come on, that doesn't give me much of anything. To fulfill all righteousness. Why couldn't Jesus have just explained that a little more? He knew we were going to be reading this thousands of years later. Why well, couldn't he have been, and by that I mean, da-da-da-da-da. But he doesn't. It's, it's cryptic. He leaves it to us. It's kind of like the frustration I used to experience when I would ask my parents, why? Why do I have to do that? And they'd be like, because I said so. And I'd be like, that's not a reason. You know? You do this, teenagers, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so we wish we had more, but we don't there. We, we get what we get, and we don't throw a fit, so to speak. But Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness. Now, as much as we don't understand about that phrase, here's what we can deduce. Here's what we can know. Even though on the outside, Jesus' baptism seems odd. It kind of seems nonsensical that Jesus would be baptized. But Jesus is saying it was the right thing to do for the plan and the purposes of God. This was the right thing to do for the plan and the purposes of God. It was a necessary part of the way God would reveal his righteousness in his son. The baptism, for whatever reason, was a necessary part of the plan of God to reveal his righteousness in Jesus Christ. It was a necessary part of his plan. That much we know. And that's like a lot of things in our life, right? How many times in our lives do we ask why? Why is this happening? Why are you letting this happen? And in the end, we have to come back to, this must be a necessary part in God's plan for my life. I just have to trust him. And so even when we don't fully understand, we can still trust. And indeed, that is part of what faith is. Trusting God when you don't have all of the explanations because he is God and I am not. But it also seems like, Because of what we read here, it seems like another reason for Jesus to be baptized was that this was the launch of his public ministry. This was the launch of his public ministry. It's kind of a ceremony, if you will. And we we see that because of what we read in verses 10 and 11. After Jesus is baptized, look what happens. Verse 10, when he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven saying... You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, I want you to notice something kind of in passing here. This is not the main point of the the passage. But I want you to notice how all three members of the Trinity are here, present, right there at that event. All three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, present right here in this one event. The, The Trinity, meaning we worship a God... That is triune, that is three in one. One God and three persons, as they say. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God, but three persons. It's very mysterious. We, we can never fully understand it. And yet that is the picture we get throughout Scripture. And you won't even find that word, Trinity, anywhere in the Bible. But what you will see is all three members of the Trinity being mentioned in numerous places. Specifically, right here, they're all three present. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want you to notice that, just kind of in passing. But the point of the passage here is more than that. God is publicly setting his approval on Jesus right here. Jesus is baptized, and in a way way that people can see and hear. The people who were there could see this and could hear it. The Spirit descends upon Jesus. And so you see, in a visual form, God setting his Spirit on this man. And you hear audibly God telling that he has set his approval upon this man. This is my beloved son. Interestingly enough, this is, only, this is one of only three times in the Gospels where God speaks audibly and people around can hear. He only does that three times in all of the Gospels. It's here. And then we see it again at the transfiguration. Remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain? He was transfigured before them. He, he shined brightly, and next to him appeared Elijah and Moses. And then the, the disciples are scared. They're, they're talking out of their minds. But then God speaks, and God says, This is my son. Listen to him. Remember that one. And then there's a a third time that God speaks like this that you might not remember from John 12, verse 28. Jesus is praying in front of people, and he says in his prayer, Father, glorify your name. And then God speaks back where the crowds can hear and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Those are the only three times in the Gospels where God actually speaks in a way that people can hear. The only three times in the New Testament, from what I understand where people can hear his voice. In a normal baptism, in a normal baptism, you can't see the Spirit coming upon a person. And you don't hear God's pleasure audibly, but those things are still there. Those things are there in a normal baptism. The Spirit comes to dwell inside of a person. And then God is pleased with what he sees. You just, you don't see it, you don't hear it, but hear God is doing something unique. This is the most unique baptism in the history of the world. God was doing something very special here for his son. He was setting his approval on this man for all to see so that Jesus could begin his public ministry. Many times in, in our lives, many times in our world, when people finish their preparation for their vocation, there's some kind of ceremony, right? When, when people finish preparation for the vocation that they're going to have, the job that they're going to have, we have ceremonies for these things. Graduations, right? And it's, it's filled with all kinds of ceremonial things that, that we do. We bestow degrees. We, we put things over people's shoulders or hats on their heads or things like that, right? It's a ceremony that someone is, is ready to go out and do their, their work. This happens to ministers, Where you have an ordination ceremony of some kind and sometimes the elders will lay their hands on the minister and pray and they'll they'll kind of send him out with with words of affirmation and and telling the the minister this is what you are called to do according to God's word. So we have these things. We understand a ceremony after someone finishes the preparation before they go into their their work, their job. Well this is kind of like Jesus' ceremony to begin his public ministry. And from this point on, he does. From this point on, we will see he goes straight into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, which was a kind of initial act. And then, then he begins to call his disciples to follow him. His ministry begins, it starts here. And so one of the reasons Jesus was baptized was to launch his public ministry. But finally, let me give you a third reason why Jesus was baptized. I think this one's not as apparent, but just as crucial. Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners. He is identifying with sinners here. Instead of doing the baptizing, instead of calling other sinners to repent, Jesus is in the water, receiving baptism right along with all the other sinners. This is Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus' life. This is what he came to do to identify with sinners. We see this throughout the Bible. In Jesus, God comes down to where we are and he identifies with us. He experienced our weaknesses. He experienced our temptations. He experienced what it was like to live in one of these bodies around all of these other people. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He did not remain in heaven, distant, removed, out of touch, calling us to climb out of the pit to him. No, he got down in the pit with us, and then he leads us out. That's the way he saves us. He doesn't stand far back, like the CEO who's not willing to go onto the factory floor and has no idea what his employees are experiencing. No, he gets down in the pit with us and then pulls us and leads us out. Ultimately, this initial act of Jesus identifying sinners, identifying with sinners, points forward to his death. This act points forward to his death, Jesus often spoke of his death as a what? A baptism that he had to undergo. The very act of getting dunked underwater, we know, symbolizes a death that we undergo. And about three years after this event right here, Jesus would undergo that baptism. The baptism of crucifixion. The baptism of death for the sins of the world. And it is at the cross where Jesus truly identifies with sinners. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has laid upon Jesus all of our iniquities, all of our sins. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And when he, when he becomes our sin, God pours out his wrath on his son and punishes those sins in his innocent Son. Jesus came to identify with sinners. He was baptized to identify with sinners. That's his life, that's his purpose. And so I ask you this morning, having heard all of this, why should we be baptized? Why should you be baptized if you have not yet? We talked last week about how John the Baptist's baptism was a bit different from Christian baptism. And of course, when we are baptized, we do not get baptized for the same reasons Jesus did. He didn't need repentance. He didn't need to be forgiven. But his baptism does leave an example for us, at least in part. If the sinless Son of God had to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, how much more do sinners like us need to be baptized so that we might become the righteousness of God? Of God, so that we might receive a righteousness that is not our own. How much more do we need to receive the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of our sins? When Jesus was baptized, three things happened. We see it right here. Three things happened the Holy Spirit descended upon him, God was pleased, and then God told everyone that this was his son. When we are baptized, three things happen. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. God is pleased. And then we become one of God's children. Those three things happen to us as well. We become one of God's children. He adopts us into his family. And so I leave you with the words of Peter at Pentecost, where we really trace back the the first beginnings of christian baptism as peter was preaching to the people about jesus and about his death and about their guilt before god they cried out to him because they were convicted at the heart and they said what should we do then what should we do to be saved and peter says to them acts 2:38 repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right now, we're going to spend some time in silent, responsive prayer to God. This time each week at Columbia Christian, we ask that you take these moments after the sermon to pray to the Lord and to respond to whatever he has laid upon your heart. Pour your heart out to the Lord. Respond to the ways that he has spoken to you. Speak back to him. Everyone needs to respond to the message. Not just those who might walk the aisle. Everyone needs to respond to the message. And so that's the time that we give right now. After that time that we give for prayer, we'll have a time where people who might need to come forward and respond to God's message publicly can do so. But everyone, right now, will you pray and respond with me?